Well, hi everyone. I am Janet B. Recovered from Compulsive Eating and Bulimia. And tonight I am going to talk about There is a Solution, chapter two in our big book. So if you have your book and you want to kind of follow along, we are on page 17. And a whole bunch could be said just about the title of the chapter, right? There is a solution. So the first thing is that they say a solution, one solution. I can't come in here and say, oh, here's Janet's way. Like they have one way and it's a guaranteed solution. And a solution means there's a problem, right? Um, so first what they do is they define the problem. Um, and what's the problem? That we don't have the power to stop eating compulsively. And what's the solution? Well, we'll get to it in a few pages, but they say the grace of God, where God comes in and changes our hearts and just kicks out the obsession. That is the solution that this program talks about. Um, so let's see. First paragraph, they say, we of Alcoholics Anonymous, or for us, Overeaters Anonymous, know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. So there's a nexus, there's a connection between feeling hopeless and recovering. So hopelessness is good because if we don't feel hopeless, we're not going to do the work that this program requires, that this program tells us that we need to do. So, um, so it's good to feel hopeless, but only if there's a real solution, right? We don't want people to feel hopeless and just like not give them anything, only if there's a real solution. And then they say, we're different. We have different political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. Normally, we might not mix, right? A group of Democrats, a group of Republicans, um, a group of rich people, a group of not so rich people. And they say, but it doesn't matter. There's this fellowship here. And they say, yeah, there may have been a fellowship like among people who were all rescued from the Titanic. They all survived disaster together. But they say our fellowship goes deeper than that. We didn't just have a common peril. We have a common solution, a way out on which we can absolutely agree. Imagine getting two addicts to agree on anything but they said a whole bunch of them absolutely agreed on this. And they say, this is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I like the way they use that word carry. It means they carry it to me, but I need to pick it up. It may be carried to me, but I need to pick up and do this message. So on page 18, they talk about the illness. They say an illness of this sort and we've come to believe it's an illness, involves those around us in a way no other human sickness can. Um, an illness. An illness requires outside intervention, right? If I have pneumonia, I need penicillin. If I have diabetes, I need insulin. If I have cancer, I need chemo or radiation or something. People who have an illness don't just say, I'll make myself get better, just by willpower. We don't even do that with a cold. We don't say, if I, with, if I have enough willpower, I can shorten the duration of my cold. We don't do that. Um, so they say, this is an illness, but it's different than other illnesses because if someone has 
your standard illness, right? Um, people feel badly for them, but they say not with us because with us, what we do is we annihilate everything worthwhile in life. You know, it brings fierce resentment, financial insecurity, disgusted relatives. Um, and then this one, heartbreaking, warped lives of blameless children. And they say, okay, the goal of this book is to inform and comfort those who are affected. So to give, give us good information and to comfort us, to know that there is a solution. And then they go and say, you know, even like highly competent psychiatrists have trouble dealing with people like us. Um, generally, we're not honest with them, which makes their job impossible. And they say, it's hard. They say, but the ex-problem drinker or eater who has found the solution can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic or compulsive eater in a few hours. And until that understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. Why? We all have like hard truths that we need to talk about. And we have a lot of shame and guilt. And when we meet a group of people, who were just like us and who've done the same types of things we've done um, and live the same type of lies and lives that we have, we can feel safe. And when we feel safe, it makes it a lot easier to be honest. So they say it's really important. Um, and then they tell us the things that should be part of a successful 12 step call, bottom of page 18, that the person has had the same difficulty, right? I've been there. I know how you feel. That he knows what he's talking about. So we should get familiar with this information in the book when we want to help someone. We should, the person should feel we know what we're talking about. That his whole deportment shouts that he has a real answer. Now, we don't shout at people, right? We don't berate people when they struggle. But our deportment says like, I'm in recovery. I'm alive. Life is great. Yeah, there's challenges, but there's joy. Um, that we have no holier than thou. All I am is someone who may have gotten on the bus a couple stops before the next person. It doesn't make me any better than they are. Um, nothing except the sincere desire to be helpful. So we don't get anything out of this. No fees to pay. No one charges money for this. Um, for this at Recovery Jam, we don't take a penny. Melissa and I pay for the website ourselves. We pay for the pod beam hosting ourselves. Everything is free. Um, no access to grind. We don't sit there and like, oh, sugar is the devil. Uh-uh. No people to please. So guys, even when we get a sponsor, we don't want to be people pleasers because what that is, is making an idol out of our sponsor and it makes it virtually impossible for our sponsors to help us. Um, no lectures to endure. Um, I hope no one is feeling now that they're enduring a lecture, um, but no one should really sit there in front of their sponsor and have their sponsor berate them and lecture them. It's I remember my first sponsor um, and I ate compulsively and she had a friend. She didn't even just berate me. She had a friend come and say, well, why'd you eat that? You know what it tastes like. I mean, 
really, who of us is ever going to say, you're right, I do. Thanks for the information. Now I'll stop. It doesn't work to berate someone, to yell at someone, to shame someone. We already feel bad enough about ourselves in the illness. So page 19, it says, none of us makes a sole vocation of this work. And we don't think it would be more effective if we did. So I'm not supposed to quit my job and do this full time. They say, elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. So we can say elimination of our compulsive eating is but a beginning. No, that does not mean that the first step is that, or, or step zero is that we put down the food. Step one tells me I don't have the power to put down the food. So when people say, well, the first step is to put down the food. No, it isn't. You won't see that anywhere in this book. Um, so, but what they're saying is, okay, we go through the steps. We're not obsessing about food anymore. We're not eating compulsively. Guys, that's just the beginning. It gets better. There's more. And it says a much more important demonstration of our principles lies before us in our homes, occupations, and affairs. So when God's looking down on me, he's not going to say, see my servant, Janet. I'm so proud of her because she stuck to her food plan today. No, if anything, he's going to say, see my servant, Janet. She was honest at work. She was kind to the people in her life. That's what's important. Um, so, and they tell us all of us spend much of our spare time in the sort of effort which we're going to describe, helping others, going through the steps so that we can recover and then helping others to recover. And they say, a few are fortunate enough to be so situated that they can give nearly all their time to the, this work. So they consider themselves fortunate if they could do this work, if they could spend time helping others. And they say, okay, so what do we do? We wanna help more people. And they say, I know, we'll write a book. And that's how this book was born. They were a group of people, they were helping people, and they said, but hundreds of alcoholics are dropping into oblivion. What do we do? And they say, we're going to publish an anonymous book and bring to it our combined experience and knowledge. And it says, this will be a useful program. So this program is based on the founders' experience and knowledge. And then they tell us the first thing that's really important for us to do. Bottom of page 19, they say, most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and respect for their opinions or attitudes which make us more useful to others. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers or eaters depend upon our constant thought of others and how we can help meet their needs. Okay, so this is really important. My very, they're not saying your very life depends on your, you know, analysis of every possible chemical ingredient, you know, and, you know, making a super duper strict food plan. They say our life, yes, we need a food plan. Yes, we need to avoid our trigger foods, but that's not what our life depends on. Our life depends on constantly thinking of other people and how we can help meet their needs. So how do I do that? Especially if we're through the steps, it's easier. We find people to sponsor and take through the steps. If we're not, we look at the others in our lives, 
we've all got others, we've got family, friends, neighbors, and how we can help meet their needs. So we think, okay, what need does this person have? Not necessarily their wants, especially if we have young children, right? You know, I want a pony, right? I, I want to eat only candy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That may be their wants. But we look, what are their needs of the people in our lives and how we can help meet them? Help meet them. Doesn't mean that, you know, we do everything for everyone. We help. And what gets in the way of our being able to do that? Well, if we go back to bottom of 19, it says real tolerance for other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and a respect for their opinions. So tolerance um, for people's shortcomings. Am I getting angry at the people in my life who aren't perfect? Well, that's going to make me not able or willing to be useful to them. So I just have to say, yeah, okay. I mean, like my son can get cranky. My daughter can be irresponsible. You know what? It's okay. God's not finished with them yet. I can tolerate the things that aren't perfect about them. And respect for others' opinions and attitudes. I'll tell you, Melissa, who does this workshop with me, we, have, we are different religions. We are different political views. We are just on the opposite end of the spectrum in some things. It doesn't matter. I respect her views. She respects mine. And we look for what we have in common, which is a love for God and a love for this program. It does, those things don't matter. So we have to get over that. And if we could put it in one word, our intolerance, our lack of respect for other people's opinions and shortcomings, um, I would call it judgmental. And I can be very judgmental. It's a defect I have to work on in myself. Um, so, it, so right away, if you're new and think, okay, what do I do? So one thing we can do is stop looking at things people are doing wrong. Look at what they do right. Look at what needs they have and how we can help them. And the more self-sacrifice we can do, the better it is. Self-sacrifice. Okay. Um, okay, so we are on page 20 now, and it says, you may have asked yourself, why did we become ill from drinking? And what do I have to do? And they tell us, it is the purpose of this book to answer these questions specifically. So we are holding a textbook on how to recover. And it says, um, there's three different types of drinkers, not three different types of alcoholics, three types of drinkers. So we'll put it in food terms, moderate eaters, hard eaters, and real compulsive eaters. So a moderate eater is someone maybe like my husband. Um, about 20 years ago, the doctor said, you have high blood pressure. You should probably lose about 15 pounds. So my husband just like went on a diet and lost the weight and has kept it off. And if like, you know, we go on a cruise or something and we come back and he says, oh, I've gained a few pounds. He'll just do this weird thing called cutting back. And then he'll just be like back to normal. That's a moderate eater. A hard eater is further progressed. So these are the people I believe who can go to Weight Watchers and recover because they need the structure and support. And these are the people who 
this was why I was confused when I first went to Overeaters Anonymous and there were these people losing weight and, and they keep the weight off, um, but they're not working the steps. These are hard eaters. They need the structure and support. But a real compulsive eater needs a miracle. I'll give you an example of a hard eater um, in terms of alcohol. My friend Elle, her husband said, if I have even one glass of wine, I can't stop. So he had the allergy of the body. So he said, so I will never again have one glass of wine. And to my knowledge, he hasn't. So he's a hard drinker and a hard drinker can stop with a good enough motivation and structure and support. But a real compulsive eater can't. We are people who need a miracle. It says we lose all control once we, let's say for us, take the first compulsive bite. They say, why? Why are we like this? And page 22, they ask that. They say, why can't he stay on the water wagon? Why can't he stay sober? Why can't we stay abstinent? And here's what they say. Perhaps there will never be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people. We want to find out why we're compulsive eaters generally so we can figure out who to blame, usually our parents. But this program teaches me that even if my parents messed up and really none of our parents held us when we were babies and said, you know what, I'm holding this little baby. My mission in life is to mess this kid up as best I can. None of, none of our parents did that. And you know what, I didn't do that either. And my kids might say that I did some stuff that messed them up. Our parents are only human just like we're human. And just like we want God and our fellows to give us grace and forgiveness, we need to give it to our parents. So they're saying, we don't know why we're like this. Um, they say, although Dr. Bob in his story, Dr. Bob's Nightmare, says that he believes that his selfishness engendered this illness. And we'll see that um, later on. It talks about... Um, no, well, not really in this chapter, so I'll say it now. Um, in chapter five, it says selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of the illness. So that's why the root of recovery has to be God-centeredness and other-centeredness, right? Um, it's like we need a root transplant. And so, okay, God will transplant us from the garden of self into the garden of God and others but we have to water the plant with our unselfish self-sacrifice for others. That's our job. So bottom of 22, top of 23, they say, okay, we're people who are different in the bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible to stop. And then they tell us real important page 23, these observations that were like different would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic, the compulsive eater, centers in his mind rather than in his body. It centers in the mind, not the body, right? Elle's husband, he had a problem with his body, totally irrelevant because his mind was fine. Um, so our problem centers in our mind. 
we think we can have one and get away with it. It centers in the mind, but it doesn't start there. On page 64 of our book, it tells us once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So it starts in the spirit and then sets up command central in our minds. So what happens once we have this problem? It says, yeah, you know what we do? We offer excuses. And if if confronted, and you can check and see which type you are, there's a type who laughs it off, makes jokes about it. There's a type who becomes irritated or nasty, or there's a type that clams up. So most of us are one of those types or a combination, a different one at different times. And they say, but every now and then we'll tell the truth. And the truth is, we don't know why we took the first compulsive bite. We don't know. And it says there's an obsession that somehow, someday they will beat the game, but they suspect they're down for the count. That's the great obsession, not alcohol or food. One day I will be able to eat the way I want and get away with it. And in chapter three, they say this is an illusion, a delusion, an insane thought. Bottom of 23 onto 24. And they say the tragic truth is that if the man be a real alcoholic, the happy day when he can control it may not arrive. He has lost control at the certain point in the eating, let's say, of every compulsive eater. He passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop, let's say, eating is of absolutely no avail. So the problem isn't lack of desire. The problem is lack of power. And at a certain point, it's like we cross this invisible line. And now desire is of absolutely no avail. Maybe some of us can remember a time where we could have stopped if we wanted to. I can't. I remember back when I was four years old, obsessing about the snacks in nursery school. Um, so, but we cross a line where desire is of no avail. And this is really important because, you know, for my first six and a half years in OA, I didn't get better. I never got more than two weeks of abstinence. And I'm sure people said, oh, she doesn't have a strong enough desire. Well, I wanted to stop badly. I had a strong desire, but our book tells us the problem isn't lack of desire, it's lack of power. So I had, so they say, um, the most powerful desires of absolutely no avail. So sometimes I'll say to someone, well, what are you not willing to do? And they say, well, I guess I'm not willing to put the food down because I'm still binging. And I say, no, no, no. I mean, maybe, like, do you want to stop if you could? Um, only once did I have someone say, yeah, no, I really don't want to stop. And then it's like, okay, our book tells us we don't waste time trying to persuade someone they should. But usually it's like, well, I want to stop, but I must not really want to because I pick up the food. Well, that's like a cancer patient saying, I must not really want my cancer cells to stop multiplying because they're still multiplying. We can have desire, but not have power. So then the paragraph in italics, page 24. And after that, yes, you're going to hear the bridge. 
Um, the fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink, no power. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. Well, how come? How come we have no willpower? And it says we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink or the first compulsive bite. And they say there's like a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. Well, this is kind of weird, like to, you know, to try. And, so let's try and work our way through it. It says we can't bring into our consciousness where we make our decisions, the memory of the suffering that our binging caused us. And that that inability to get our memory of the suffering over to our conscious mind is what leaves us defenseless when the illness says, I think you're going to binge now. So this is how it works. Normally, again, my defense against doing something dangerous is my memory. They talk about hot stoves. I've brought my hand on a hot stove once or twice. So if I'm about to wipe the stove down after dinner and it's still hot, I'm like, ah, my brain will scan, my memory will scan the data points. You touch the hot stove and you burnt your hand. Sends a thought across the bridge that connects to my conscious mind to say, danger, hot stoves burn you. Or anyone who knows me knows I am very allergic to cats. So if someone invites me to her house, um, I ask people in advance, do you have a cat? And if the person says yes, um, my mem and, and even if I want to go, my memory will quickly scan the data points. This time you went near a cat and had an asthma attack. This time you went near a cat and three days later you had a sinus infection. This time you went near a cat and you were, you know, wheezing, sneezing, your eyes were red and running. Um, you So don't do it. Sends a little thought to run across the bridge. Danger, cats will give you an asthma attack. Don't go. And then I tell my friend, I'm sorry, I can't go to your house. So with food, again, normally I would have the same protection. When I was in college, this is my best example. I used to binge on these certain kind of cookies. They came in a box of 20. I would go down the street to the drugstore, tell myself I'm gonna buy a box, but I'm just gonna have one or two, right? We know how that story ended, all 20 were gone. So in my memory or all these data points, you say you're just gonna have one or two, but you have 20. You say you're gonna have one, but you eat the whole box. You tell yourself it doesn't matter, but you wake up the next day and you feel horrible. You gain weight. You hate yourself. Don't do it. Generates a thought to run across a bridge. Danger. You're not going to be able to stop at one or two. Don't do it. Except unlike with hot stoves and cats, the bridge is broken and the thought can't get across. My memory of horrible binge hangovers, my memory of my inability to stop no matter how much I want to, that memory cannot make its way across the bridge to my conscious mind where I make decisions. And that makes me hopeless. And it says when this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies or compulsive eating tendencies, He's probably placed himself 
beyond human aid. So that means I can't help myself and no other person can help me. A sponsor can guide me, but a sponsor's job is to take her sponsee's hand and put it into the hand of God. That's what this program is about. That's what a sponsor's job is. And they say, top of page 25, here's the solution. But for the grace of God, there would have been thousands more convincing demonstrations. So many want to stop, but cannot. What is grace? It's not some big religious word. It means unmerited favor. God is giving me not only doing for me what I can't do for myself, but doing for me what I don't deserve to have done. So when people say, well, I can't go to God because I have shame or guilt, it doesn't matter. This, it's all grace. It's all unmerited favor. It doesn't matter if we feel guilty about things we've done. It doesn't matter if we feel shame, like we, like I don't deserve God to help me. It's true. We don't deserve for God to help us. I certainly didn't. He didn't help me because I deserved it. He helped me because he's good. So how do I place myself in the position to be on the receiving end of God's grace? Well, it says there is a solution. Almost none of us like, so they're telling us it's not going to be real easy. Self-searching, leveling of our pride, confession of shortcomings, which this process requires. Well, then why do we do it? It tells us, we've, but we'd come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it. When therefore we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved. No, not who had solved the problem themselves, because we can't solve the problem ourselves. We put ourselves in a position where God and his grace can come in and solve it for us. There was nothing left but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools. And they, they're not talking about... Um, you know, meetings, phone calls, like the tools that people read, they say spiritual tools, trust and rely on God, clean house, help others. And then what a, what a beautiful promise they give us. We have found much of heaven and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed. What's this fourth dimension they talk about? Well, Bill Wilson talks about it in his story on page eight where he says, um, I was catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Just like this illness is progressive, recovery and its gifts are progressive. So then they go on um, page 25. The great fact is just this and nothing less. So they're telling us to settle for nothing less than this, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences. Okay, and then they tell us what a spiritual experience is. Something that revolutionizes our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows and God's universe. The central fact of our lives today so basically the mission statement of our life, the main thing in our life is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. God has entered us 
and lives in us in a way that's miraculous and has accomplished to do things for us, which we could never do for ourselves, right? If there's just God and I get a relationship with him, but he gives me no power, that's not any good. But he says, God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. And they're saying, okay, if you're a serious an alcoholic, a compulsive eater as we are, there's no middle of the road solution. There's no take what you want and leave the rest. If you've passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, there's only two choices. One, to go on to the bitter end, blotting it out um, as best we can, numbing out with the food, or two, accept spiritual help. And it says, we did this because we really wanted it and we were willing to make the effort. And then they give an example of a businessman who went to a famous psychiatrist and said, please help me. And the psychiatrist basically said, this is a psychiatrist who's you know all about the mind. And he says, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I've never seen anyone like you recover except people who've had vital spiritual experiences. And here's another definition, huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. We're on page 27. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begins to dominate them. So there's a change. And the doctor says, I've tried to do this for people, but I can't. But well, of course not, because only God can do it for us. These steps, again, are a way for us to um, put ourselves in a place so that God can rescue us. I like to think of it as like if there's a flood raging in my neighborhood and the you know sheriff is coming by with the bullhorns yelling, get to the roof. That's where the helicopters are. They'll rescue you. It's my job to climb to the roof so that the helicopter can rescue me, right? I can't say, no, helicopter better land on my front porch. Um, or I'll take what I want and leave the rest. I'll just go up to like my second floor and I'll meet you halfway. He can rescue me there. No, I have to do what I'm told and go up to my roof so that I can be rescued. But I don't rescue myself. I just put myself in a position where I can be rescued. And that's what these steps are about. They're like an invitation to God saying, I want you, come in. And so they, page 28, they say, we in turn sought the same escape, a spiritual experience with all the desperation of drowning men. So how do we seek that same escape? Surrender to God live our lives the way we think God would have us. No, we might make mistakes, but God knows our hearts. Um, clean up the wreckage of our past. Try and get closer to God through daily prayer and meditation and help others. That's what we have to seek the same way a drowning man will seek a life preserver. And it said, what seemed at first a flimsy read has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. So there's two clues about God right there. He's loving and he's powerful. And it may seem a flimsy read. Maybe at the beginning, the only thing we see is, here are these other people who used to binge the way I, 
I still do, but they're not binging like that anymore. And they got better and maybe I can get better too. A flimsy read. And so we start reaching for it. And then they say, we've no desire to convince anyone that there is only one way by which faith can be acquired but it must be acquired. There's different paths, but we have to do it. And it says anyone, no matter their race, religion, color, are children of a living creator, not the wind or impersonal energy, a living creator with whom we can form a relationship as soon as we're willing and honest enough to try. Well, how do we do that? How do we try? And I think we can start with a prayer. And a prayer can go something like this. God, I don't know if you exist. And if you do exist, I don't know if you care about me. But if you do exist and you do care, I need some help. And the worst that happens is there's no God and you're talking to like air. But what if there really is a God and that prayer sets things in motion, which I believe is what happens. But we can't stop there. We can't say, God, please show yourself to me. Show me your glory. Um, and then continue to lie, cheat, steal, and be selfish. We can't do that. We have to change how we live. That if there was this God, how would he want us to live? And we start doing that. And they tell us that, you know, if you're a religious person, there's nothing in this book that will disturb your religious beliefs or ceremonies. And they say, it really doesn't matter what religion you are, or if you're no religion at all. So page 29, they say, okay, clear cut directions will be giving, given, showing how, showing how we recover. That's what this book is. And then there's stories. And they tell us the point of the stories that each individual describes in his own language and from his own point of view, the way he established his relationship with God. So when we speak, when we qualify and share our stories, that's the point of it, right? Um, what I used to be like, and that should be the, I think the shortest part of the talk, just enough so people know, yes, this person's a compulsive eater. And what did I do to get a relationship with God? And they say, um, our hope is that many alcoholics or compulsive eaters desperately in need will see these pages. That's the audience, the people desperately in need, not the people who, yeah, it'd be nice if I lost 10 pounds. The people is like, I, I just, I can't live like this. The people desperately in need will see these pages and will say, yes, I am one of them too. I must have this thing. And what is this thing? a relationship with God that's powerful enough that like, I don't know, sends the illness, it's eviction papers. And this thing, a way of life that solves all these problems, this thing, this beautiful fellowship that we have with each other, that is what this program offers. And always when I think of it, I just say like, blessed and grateful to be a part of it. And with that, I pass. Thanks.